Here's a letter written by Sean. I doubt you know him. He's 12. He may be much older now because this is from a book that says he was 12. He may be 20 by now. Dear God, thank you for my parents, for my sister Anita, for my grandma and my grandpa. They are all real warm and special. I forgive you for my brother Phil. I guess you didn't finish working on him. Dear God, thank you for my family, for my sister Anita, for my parents, for my grandma and grandpa. They're all real warm and special, but I forgive you for my brother Phil. I guess you haven't finished with him yet. Sean, age 12, gives us a a short history of the self, unwittingly, in his letter addressed to God. We've talked about the fact that in our original creation, the only thing that made the imagining of God come reality, turn from good to very good, was this apex of his creation, people like us, crafted and formed in his image, Created that we might represent Him in the world. We talked about that last week. As His royal images so that everywhere we went, people would look at us and say, Oh, God must rule at that hospital where that image is. Oh, God must rule at that school where that image is. God must rule in that family. The idea was like statues. Statues, not statues. Statues in the ancient Near East that these would be the presence of a God in various places throughout the world. But in a short amount of time, this image that was not aware of itself, it was only aware of the one that imaged and other images. He could look, Adam could, at the creation of Eve. This woman so like him and yet so utterly unlike him and be astonished. He could walk with God in the garden unaware of himself in the very moment that people, the image, the royal image of the king of creation, started to suspect, troubled as they were by the insinuations of a slithery serpent, that God Himself might be holding out on them. That God Himself might not be telling the whole truth. That God Himself, though He claimed to be good, and though He claimed to be offering all things except for this one tree, maybe, just maybe, He can't be trusted. As soon as that insinuation was allowed to grow and it was nursed a bit, we know what happens, a cataclysmic... serpent sometimes takes the form of a yellow jacket. With this insinuation came an action which brought about cataclysmic change in people and in the planet as we know it. These folks who were naked and unashamed, the first thing that happened to them is that they became like adolescents. They became painfully self Conscious. Whereas formerly they didn't even 
notice themselves. They weren't thinking of themselves. They weren't walking alongside themselves, analyzing themselves, studying themselves, watching themselves be themselves. They were attentive to God and attentive to people. Then suddenly with this action, the image changed. The image became aware that it was an image. And started watching itself as it imaged. And became cosmically lonely. Needing now to brand itself instead of being branded by the God whose name he and she bore. And when Sean writes, I forgive you, God, for my brother, I guess you're not finished with him yet. He's merely depicting the trajectory of what happens when you become painfully self-aware and you start to suspect that other people and God himself might not be for you. They might be your competitors. They might be someone that you've got to watch out against. And when you become painfully self-aware like this, and you know your own defects, you become, since we always see others not as they are, but as we are, you become an inspector. Where you can spot the sins of others from a mile away. Nobody spots a gossip better than a gossip. The sins we see best in others, we learn first in ourselves. And when everybody becomes a competitor of ours, when all of a sudden we're solitary, lonely, alienated beings in the universe, longing for connection because that's how we were made, longing to be known, longing to be someone who belongs, but fearing that if someone sees us like we see ourselves, they won't want that. We start analyzing. We start criticizing. We start judging. We start blaming. You've heard Queen Elsa, haven't you? Are there any eight-year-old girls in here who like to sing Let It Go? I've heard you all, all over the mountain at night when I'm sleeping. Don't let them in. Don't let them see. If you want to join in, go ahead. Be the good girl you always have to be. Conceal. Don't feel. Don't let them know. Well, now they know. The cold never bothered me anyway. You're welcome, you're welcome. The sense that there's something about us that can't be seen. There's something about us that can't stand the scrutiny of another pair of eyes because if those eyes see us in the way that we know ourselves, then there's no way that anybody would want anything to do with us. So the world becomes a very lonely place and the world becomes a very competitive place. The world becomes the kind of place where you've got to look out for yourself and therefore you've got to put other people down so that you can be elevated. You've got to be on your guard. You've got to shield yourself so that you're not injured. And it's all born out of this sense that we have to be the branders of our own image. That somehow or another, no longer can we count on God being the one who says, this is what you are and this is what you're for. Now it's, I have to decide what I'm for. And it's me against everybody else. Only problem is, I need other people. 
I want to be connected to them. I, I want to belong to them. And I'd sure like it if I could belong to God. But when we think about that too much, we're fearful. Maybe, just maybe, God shares the same evaluation of us that we share of ourselves in our most frustrated, self-contemptible moments. Maybe He's just as disgusted with us as we are. So the image has a problem. When I was 12 years old, I entered a new community. A new school of people who were wealthier than I had been. Whose parents were importanter than my parents had been. And when I got there, you know what happened to me? This broken image. This pronounced sense that something was wrong with me. Made me look out and analyze. And you know what I learned very quickly? I talked with a terrible East Tennessee accent. I mean, it was terrible. And I called people by their last names because that's what we did in East Ridge. I was a little pioneer. That's where I grew up. Little pioneer. Not a little one, just a little one. L I L. I grew up in East Ridge on ball fields, around country people. And I was all of a sudden around rich kids who didn't talk like I did. And you know what I surmised as I listened to them talk and way they acted, something's wrong with me. I saw the difference and I concluded something is defective with me. I've got to change. So I became like a newscaster (laughs) with a Midwest accent. No one told me to do this, but I purposefully and consciously dropped the accent because I thought if I did that, then I'll be one of them. I'll connect with them. I'll belong to them. That's why I picked this odd passage from Leviticus where God tells these now desert wanderers not to make idols for themselves because He's their God and that He's going to be with them. And he says, I'm going to walk among you and be your God and you'll be my people. I am the Lord who brought you up out of Egypt. So you would no longer be slaves to the Egyptians. I broke the bars of your yoke and enabled you to walk with your heads held high. It's a metaphor. It's a it's an image that the Bible uses this whole idea that God has taken people who would have who would have thought of themselves as primarily defective, as pieces of trash that needed to be carried out, as expendable people. People who did not matter in the grand scheme of things. What mattered was Pharaoh. What mattered was the Egyptians. What mattered was the people with the power. And these people had been slaves and nothing but slaves for generations. And God says, here's my intent for the image that has come to see itself as nothing, as primarily broken and defective and fouled up and useless I'm going to shatter that image and the connections that make it feel that way. And I am going to be the one that puts sturdiness in your back. I'm going to be the one who lifts up your head so that you don't walk around like a louse. You don't walk around thinking something is primarily wrong with me. 
will make it so that you can walk with your heads held high. But until and unless you let God be the one who brands you and hear Him say, I'm your God and here's who you are, my people. And so many of us are in slavery. (coughs) We're in slavery like I was as a 12-year-old boy to what other people thought of me or at least what I thought they thought of me. There's a big distinction, don't you know? Skip Ryan, you may have heard him say this before. What other people think of me is not my business. (coughs) What I think other people think of me can kill me. The only thing that matters is what Jesus thinks of me, he says. (coughs) It's very easy to assume that you know what other people think of you. It's very easy to assume that your evaluation of yourself is matched by God and by others. Hold on, I'm about to choke. Did somebody plant flowers in here? <coughs> At Lula Lake, they keep doing it. I look forward to the renewal of all things when these lovely flowering things that God has crafted don't make me want to kill them and someone else. <coughs> Man. I've just talked about murderous thoughts and now I can't remember where I was. (laughs) When you walk around with a primary sense of defect and you walk around watching yourself and you walk around thinking that everyone is your competitor but longing at the same time to belong, to be connected in some way to them because you're created in the image of God who is itself the one who says let us make man in our image the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit made us to be connected to one another as part of the image. It's a recipe for slavery. It's a recipe for being ruled by the perceptions of other people, being ruled by what they think of you or what you think they think of you. Which makes you someone very susceptible to blaming others when things don't go your way because you think you're on trial all the time. I'm on trial in the universe, and if I should fail or if something should go wrong, it can't be my fault, (laughs) or I am nothing. It's the kind of thing that makes us critical of others because we're so self-critical that the only way it seems like we're going to be able to feel any way better about ourselves is if we can somehow, by comparison, find others to be woefully lacking. It's the kind of thing that makes us conceal, not feel. Thanks, Elsa. It makes us hide. So no one can see us. If they can't see us, they can't judge us. Prevents us from trying things. As a pastor, one of the things I hear people say and have felt my own self countless times is when people are in deep distress, when people are in troubled spots, Very often, people have an impulse. The people of God have an impulse to help them, to move toward them. But that impulse is only so strong. They have another impulse, which is like this. But I don't like being in a situation where I don't know what to do. Because then I might look stupid. Then I might be found out. Then I might be exposed and there might be eyes on me and I can't bear that scrutiny. So I think I'll just, I think I'll just sit back. Like my friend you've heard me talk about who spoke of his future father-in-law and they were in a 
contentious situation. I said, how's it going? He said, well, he figures if he has enough beer and plays enough golf, it'll just work itself out. Because it's hard to move into situations. You hide if you're afraid there's something primarily defective about you and you don't want anybody to see it. So you can't move toward other people. Because they might injure you. They might reject you. They might cut you off. The image as it progressed, as it became aware of itself, moved from a state like children are now to a state like adolescence. Now, do you realize people like small kids better than they like teenagers? Sorry, teenagers. It's a phase. You'll grow out of it. I'm playing. I got one in my house right here. I like them a lot. Most days. Hey, dude, that's a joke. I like them a lot all the time. But see, here's the thing. Kids, little kids, well, little kids, they sing Let It Go without hindrance. And whether they can sing or not, little kids are not self-watchful. It's easy, easy to envy them, isn't it? It's easy to envy the way they just say what they think. Who does that? It's easy to envy how they just tell the truth without fear of whether it's going to hurt someone's feelings or them. They don't even know any better. That's why one of our children's teachers said, let's make a deal. You don't believe everything your kid tells you about me, and I won't believe everything your kid tells me about you. Because they just speak freely and openly. They don't know to be guarded. They don't know the world's a dangerous place. You've got to protect yourself. You've got to spin things. You've got to self-promote. You've got to make sure nobody knows the truth about you. Or no one's going to like you. They haven't been educated like that. They haven't been given such worldly wisdom yet. And so, doggone it, if they don't just act without watching themselves. They don't step out alongside themselves and watch themselves doing things. But then one day, there's a tornado of hormonal activities, low pressure systems of estrogen or testosterone. They collide at a cellular level and suddenly eyes open and they become painfully aware of themselves. Aware of their bodies, of their faces, of how they look, of whether people like them or not, whether they fit in or not, how their voice sounds. They won't take risks because they don't want to look foolish. They don't want to hang out with you anymore because you're foolish. (laughs) There's this kind of painful self-watchfulness. And for a lot of us, it just doesn't ever go away. Some of the people it does. And that's what happened with the image, this painful self-watchfulness. And see, God aims to do something about that. That's part of this idea of breaking the bars of the yoke and enabling you to walk with your head held high as He doesn't want the image to be ruled by bad masters. He doesn't want the image to be ruled like that. Brene Brown, as you may have heard and listened, has done a lot of great work on shame and vulnerability and such. And she has this great phrase called the shame hangover. 
And some of you may know what that is as image bearers of God who have a primarily defective sense of yourself. You've probably experienced the phenomenon that she describes after she gave her TED talk in front of an audience of 500 people. And she gave this talk on shame and talked about having a nervous breakdown after all this research she had done about the need for vulnerability and risking emotion, you know, emotional risk and all this. And she said, for three days after that talk, I could not leave my house. For three days, I was stuck in a shame hangover. And I met with my friend who said, you look awful. And she said, thank you. And she said, I just, I've just revealed myself to 500 people. And now they're about to put this on YouTube. What if it becomes 600 people or a thousand people? My life will be over. 15 million people have seen that now. She said, I had no contingency plan for that. But she did have this sense. She called it a shame hanger that I have revealed myself. And I watched it. I'm like, what did you reveal? And I heard her. You didn't reveal anything. But to her, she felt like she revealed herself so substantially that it made her want to die. You know that feeling? I feel it every Sunday. That's why I'm so difficult to live with on Sundays and then on all the days before preaching and after preaching. (laughs) Because you feel like you're up here and you just kind of offer yourself as you're preaching these words and then you just think, what a fool. I've injured them. They're going to think I'm stupid. They're going to hate me. I'm defiling the church of Christ. Some of you may have felt it when you've been in a group and you've shared things about yourself and you felt good at the moment and then you got to thinking about it. Or you had a conversation with somebody. You're talking and then you walk away from the conversation and you go, oh, I can't believe I said that. I wonder what they think. I said, what if they think? I hope they don't misunderstand. And then the other person is walking away saying, ah, I can't believe I said that. Neither of you listened to the other one, by the way. Because you're just worried about what you said. Because you just, you're worried that you revealed something about yourself so awful. So matching of your own self sense of defectiveness that the other person saw it. And for a moment there, you, the, the, the PR machine got turned off and you weren't spinning the right way. And someone saw you for who you really were. And you thought it would be better to die than that. You may have had a shame hangover when you young men realize you look up and I've just been sitting on a couch playing some video game for 14 straight hours. I haven't even used the bathroom or eaten or maybe after eating, you know, Louis CK says the meal's not over when the food's gone. The meal's not over till I hate myself. It could be a, Netflix binge or a shopping one or even the sense like I've seen written before some Fortune 500 survey of CEOs of big companies said their primary fear is that someone at some point is going to find out they shouldn't be there. Someone's going to find out the truth about them. The truth they know about themselves by living intimately 
acquainted with all that's wrong about them and this feeling that somehow or another I shouldn't be the one in charge. And if they really knew me, they would fire me or arrest me or kick me to the curb. Those shame hangovers are awful and they do feel like death. And God knows. And He doesn't want you to be ruled by them. He wants to smash the bars of the yoke that keep you tied to yourself. That keep you ruled by the opinions of others. That keep you with eyes constantly watching yourself. And He breaks the bars and enable you to walk with your heads held high. And the way He does this The way he did it for the Israelites is he says, by pronouncement, you're not slaves anymore. You're mine. You're my treasured possession. Out of all the nations of the earth, I choose you. I will be a God of commitment to you. A God of covenant to you. I'll be your God and you'll be my people. And that is that. I will not, he says, abhor you. I will not abhor you. See, in your best relationships, whether you realize it or not, the thing that makes you the freest is the sense that you have that this person knows me to the core and not only do they tolerate me, they actually like me. They think it's wonderful to be around me. I feel safe when I'm with them. I don't think they're judging me. I don't think they're going to critique me. I don't think that they're looking for a reason to get away from me. And to hear the Lord God of hosts who sees clean to the bone of all your self-appraisal, all that you should have done and didn't, and all you didn't do and should have. Knows everything about yourself that feels so awful and wrong. And he says, I will not abhor you. You'll be my treasured possession. You will be a people of mercy drafted in to a community of praise. That's why Paul Tillich can be so bold as to say, and you think about it, it's really true that what faith is It's this courage, it's this risk of accepting that God accepts us. That God knows everything about us but won't turn His face away. That we can be connected as we were meant to be and in that connection, all our inferiority can be healed. We can be granted a signed permission by the blood of our Savior that says you are free from now on to stop watching yourself live. Which means you might have to blow up the internet. What? (laughs) Well, you see, this excessive autobiographical moment we're in gives us an occasion to only watch ourselves do things and report about it. And everybody's watching themselves and reporting about it And then feeling awful as they compare themselves to everybody else watching themselves. Yeah, you understand. One guy understood what I just said. 
But what if you had permission to say, you know what? You don't have to prove yourself. Though you're in a helpless condition of slavery to others and slavery to yourself and slavery to your self-centeredness, here's what Christ has done. He said, I have smashed it. And now you're mine. And you can walk with your heads held high. I dare you to do it. Because that's what faith is. It's a dare. Will you believe it and walk that way? Or will you not? Do you have moments... Do you have moments where you start to believe this? Moments where it hits you and you think, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a second. What if this is really right? There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I mean, what if that, I know it says that, but we know that's not right. But what if it's right? Like, what if God really likes you? And what if he doesn't think about you in the same crummy way that you think about yourself? What if he thinks about you more like your mama and your daddy think about you? If you got a good one, like, you know, like our kids do. I think our kids are awesome. They're way better than your kids. Well, that's what I think, and that's what you should think too. I think they're awesome. I think they're fantastic. They make me smile. What if you believed it, that God felt that way? That's what's meant to heal the image. Because what that does is you start to believe that and you get settled in it, then you don't have to watch yourself anymore. You just go out and live. You can think about God. You can think about other people. Because they're not your competitors. You have nothing to lose. You've been given emancipation by the one whose intention is that you walk with your head held high, not ruled by shame, but by this liberty. A few years ago, there was a show called ER. Do you know this show? It was about hospitals and such. And I remember this stark image of a man who was eaten up with his shame, this defective image who knew that he had done vile things and he was a vile man. He sexually ruined himself and others. And there's this graphic scene where he comes out of a bathroom and he has carved with a razor blade the word pervert in his forehead. He's branded himself. This is who I am. I am a pervert. I am not right. I am vile. And to prove it, he etched it in his own skin. And I think of comparison of two fatherly situations I know. One, a man who said, when I was growing up, my father would wake us up in the morning. Come on, guys, it's time to get up. And we, as teenage boys would do, would ignore him. Come on, guys, it's time to be up. It's going to be a fantastic day today, he would say. Go away. Guys, you got to get up. It's going to be a fantastic day today. You know why? Because at some point today, It's going to dawn on you just how much I love you. And another father that I know that every day when he dropped his son off at school so that his son didn't feel like he had to brand himself, that he had to craft an image for himself, this father would say to him, Son, I want you to walk tall today. Walk tall. And behind that expression was this sense, you 
are someone who is adored. You are someone who is mattering to your Father. You're someone who belongs because of the affirmation of someone over you who's strong, who knows all, and will not turn his face away. The one man knew his defects and carved pervert in his head. My, my friend, who was told to walk tall, got a tattoo as he grew up that said, walk tall. So he could remember always the words of his father spoken over him. Your God, your God, says you're my people against all odds and against all your unbelief. Will you believe it? Will you accept it? Will you take and carry with you in the morning my written and earned and paid for permission to stop watching yourself because you have nothing to prove and you have nothing to lose? You have only a God whose image you bear who says, I'm the shatterer of everything that binds you. I want you to walk with your head held high. I hope you can believe it. Let's pray. And if you'll turn to your bulletins on the second panel, there's a corporate prayer that we're going to do of confession. Father, will you hear us and will you help us? Because it is so inordinately difficult For us to unfasten our eyes from ourselves. So would you do that for us today? We're sorry for all the ways that we've been held in mastery to other people. We've, we've done things. We've morphed and changed. Not because of attentiveness to you, but so that we could belong. So we could matter. And we forgot that You being mindful of us is what makes us matter. Will you hear us, though, because we know that we can come to you and we can confess. Hear us as we make our corporate confession. Almighty God, we confess how hard it is to be your people. You have called us to be the church, to continue the mission of Jesus Christ to our lonely and confused world. Yet we acknowledge we are more apathetic than active isolated than involved and compassionate, obstinate than obedient, legalistic than loving. Have mercy upon us and forgive our sins. Remove the obstacles preventing us from being your representatives to a broken world. Awaken our hearts to the promised gift of your indwelling spirit. This we pray in Jesus' powerful name. Amen. Will you take a moment to make silent confession and to perhaps ask God to break the bars of the yoke that binds you so you may walk free?